On tonight's show, we look for the boogeyman, scare the audience, and misrepresent classical philosophy. That's right, we're talking natural law, right fright, and the establishment media. Thank you for joining us once again for another episode of Misbehaved Liberty. So tonight you may be wondering where the scheduled episode is. And I assure you, it's almost finished and it is in fact coming. You may also be wondering why we're going to be talking about natural law when we just talked about fundamental rights in our last episode and the two do go hand in hand. Well, last week, I happened to catch a clip of an MSNBC interview with a journalist at Politico, one Heidi Prezbola, and I'm probably butchering her name as badly as she butchered natural law. Anyway, in the segment, which I'm going to play for you later, she did a spectacularly poor job of expressing what natural law and natural law theory is. And any viewer who is aware of these theories would assume that she's either gaslighting the audience or an illiterate idiot who was socially promoted through college and has enjoyed diversity inclusion promotions ever since. Girl boss for the win, she might as well be an honorary member of the MCU. But before we get into the clip, and before we actually look at what she said, we're going to do a quick rundown of natural law, starting with a basic, clear definition of natural law and moving into a very brief history of natural law and why it all matters. So according to Cornell Law School's Legal Information Institute, in legal philosophy, natural law is a set of universal truths, principles, and rules that properly govern moral human conduct. In contrast to positive law, natural law is pre-existing and discovered through human reason and rational analysis. From a natural law perspective, the purpose of laws and the judicial system is to become as close to natural law as possible. Now, natural law is a very complex theory that simply assumes all humans have inherent rights based on them being humans. It's immaterial if these rights come from a god, from nature, or from reason, or, as we discussed last week, cogito ergo sum. The theory is not new, it's not tied to religion, and in many ways it's a cornerstone of Western philosophy, especially Western legal philosophy. Aristotle may have written about it, though his beliefs on natural or universal law as he termed it, and the resulting arguments about what he said, have trickled down through the centuries and they can and do fill dozens of books. Cicero and Livy both did write about natural law, with Cicero being the far more influential of the two. In the Republic of Cicero, he states it thus, There is indeed a law, right reason, which is in accordance with nature, existing in all, unchangeable, eternal, commanding us to do what is right, forbidding us to do what is wrong. It has dominion over good men, but possesses no influence over bad ones. Neither the people or the Senate can absolve from it. It is not one thing at Rome 
and another thing at Athens, but it is eternal and immutable for all nations and all time. Cicero, granted he was a Roman philosopher, but he should not be taken for granted. His writings on constitutions, politics, and natural law would continue to influence philosophers and do continue to influence philosophers throughout much of history, including the Renaissance, during the Enlightenment, and you can find his influence in America's founding documents. In the Christian era, Paul mentions natural law in his epistle to the Romans when he writes about the laws written in their hearts when referring to the Gentiles who did not live under a formal legal structure but behaved in a lawful manner regardless. In the Middle Ages, Augustine of Hippo questioned whether people were obligated to follow unjust laws. And then there was Thomas Aquinas and his monumental Summa Theologica. Natural law, according to Aquinas, is broken into seven virtues, four cardinal virtues that man can determine for himself through reason, and three theological virtues. The four cardinal virtues are prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. The three theological virtues are faith, hope, and charity. For Aquinas, for an act to be good, both the act and the motive must be good. As an example, you buy a sandwich for a starving man, but you bought the sandwich so others would see how generous you are. The act in total is a bad act because you had an unjust motive. To be a good act, you cannot violate any of the cardinal or theological virtues. In this case, your act of charity was polluted by your desire for recognition. Aquinas undoubtedly assigned a strong moral component to his formulation of natural law, a moral component which does not necessarily exist. In the case we just outlined, I'd argue that the good performed, feeding the starving man, outweighs your desire for recognition. Yes, you may gain something through that recognition, but you've still fed a starving man, which as a whole is a plus positive for the world. Luckily, by the time we get to Thomas Hobbes, people were ready for a less morally constructive formulation for natural law. According to Hobbes, natural law is a precept or general rule found out by reason, by which a man is forbidden to do that which is destructive of his life, or takes away the means preserving the same, and to admit that by which he thinks it may be best preserved. Natural law was now how a rational human would act to survive and prosper. Natural law as a result of natural rights. The world begins to make sense. First our rights, second the legal protections of those rights. Hobbes went on to adopt a legal positivism argument where once society is joined, not all laws will be reasoned or just or moral. Once man submits to government, legal positivism takes over from natural law. Hobbes goes on to identify 19 natural laws, which we will not be getting into today. Maybe in a future episode, if there's enough interest. Hobbes's influence cannot be understated. The Hobbesian view of the state of nature was a savage place where life was brutal, violent, and short, and that man joined into societies because it made survival easier, regardless if that society was just or not. For Hobbes, protecting the fundamental rights of the individual 
meant surrendering some of those rights to join a society. John Locke disagreed with Hobbesian thought and wrote in his two treaties of government that if a ruler went against natural law and failed to protect life, liberty, and property, the ruler's subjects could justifiably overthrow the existing state and create a new one. This leads us naturally to the Declaration of Independence and Thomas Jefferson. You can hear the influence of Locke in Jefferson's words concerning unalienable rights and governments needing the consent of the governed to rule. But I hear what you're saying, and I understand it. Thomas Jefferson still talked about the Creator. Isn't all this dependent on some divine authority? Like we talked about last week, just with, just with fundamental rights, the answer is a resounding no. Fundamental rights and natural law can and are deduced by reason. This matters because the discovery of these rights, these laws, through reason, defeats arguments on both sides of the political spectrum that seek to discredit natural law and natural or fundamental rights through either appeals against the divine or appeals to the divine. For the right-wing theocracy to take hold, they need you to believe that rights come from God. For the left-wing progressive oligarchy to take hold, you need to believe rights flow from the state. Neither of these propositions are true, but both sides need you to believe in the truth of them in order to maintain power and control over you. As Murray Rothbard argued, the very existence of a natural law, discoverable by reason, is a potentially powerful threat to the status quo and a standing reproach to the reign of blindly traditional custom or the arbitrary will of the state apparatus. There are no gods in politics. There are no masters. There is only fear. That is how control is maintained. The fear that force will be used against you if you don't conform to what religion or the state is forcing upon you. But we are free. We just don't realize it, and we certainly don't exercise it. A system cannot continue to exist if the members of the system stop giving legitimacy to the system. So the state apparatus grinds on, relying on the body politics herd mentality to achieve compliance through the implicit threat of force. But let's listen to the state's newest mouthpiece explain natural law and human rights. React to that. How are they responding to this real strong infusion of Christian nationalism into the body politic of the House? I've talked with a lot of experts on this, and I've seen it myself with my reporting, Michael, which is that the base of the Republican Party has shifted, right? Remember when Trump ran in 2016, a lot of the mainline evangelicals wanted mm -hmm. nothing to do with the divorced, uh, you know, real estate mogul who right. had cheated on his wife and with a porn star and all of that, right? So what happened was he was surrounded by this more extremist element. You're going to hear words like Christian nationalism, like the new apostolic reformation. These are groups that you should get very... Uh, very schooled on because they have a lot of power in Trump's circle. And the one thing that unites all of them, because there's many different groups orbiting Trump, but the thing that unites them as Christian nationalists, not Christians, by the way, because Christian nationalists is very different, mm -hmm. is that they believe that our rights as Americans, as all human beings, don't come from any earthly authority. They don't come from Congress. They don't come from the Supreme Court. They come from God. 
the problem with that is that they are determining man men mm -hmm. it is yeah, men yeah. are determining what god is telling them and in the past that so-called natural law is you know it's a pillar of catholicism for, mm -hmm. catholicism for instance it's been used for good in social justice campaigns right. martin luther king evoked it in talking about civil rights but now you have an extremist element of conservative Christians who say that this applies specifically to issues including abortion, gay marriage, and it's going much further than that, as you see, for instance, with the ruling in Alabama right. this week, that judge is connected to that dominionist uh, faction mm -hmm. in, in talking about um, a lot of other issues, including surrogacy, IVF, uh, you know, sex education in schools. It, 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 there's a lot in addition. And there now, is she gaslighting all of us, or does she just have no idea what she's talking about? She's making an argument that ties Christian nationalism, something we should all strive to avoid empowering, with natural law theory. Yet we just spent 10 minutes or so discussing how natural law both predates Christianity and exists outside of religion, not to mention that it can be deduced through pure reason alone. Now... To be clear, I, I have no problem with nationalism. I do, however, have a pretty serious problem with Christian nationalism. I have zero interest in living under a theocratic rule, whether it's the Ayatollah in Iran, the Taliban in Afghanistan, or some Christian theocracy here in America. They're all the same flavor of oppression. They're all the same control through fear by appealing to a higher authority. Theocracies, no matter where they're found, are intrinsically evil. Theocratic regimes are antithetical to individual rights and liberties. Rights for these people are nice talking points. For Christian conservatives in the United States, rights are nice talking points. But, mm, ironically, they're usually forced into taking a Hobbesian position of legal positivism to justify their religious viewpoint. Anyone who cherishes individual freedom should be able to rationally see that the Christian perspective on, the, on several of these issues is antithetical to one's fundamental right of self-ownership. While you'll hear many people in the right, especially recently, Speaking about abortion, what are they actually saying? What do they actually mean? They want to protect human life, correct? They want to ban abortion. They want to stop people from doing this, and they say that they are doing it to protect life. And many of them claim a moral high ground. Some of them do make appeals to natural rights, natural rights or to natural law or to rights-based arguments in general. But while what they're actually saying, what the Christian perspective actually is, it's an arbitrary declaration that the state owns pregnant women. That's not hyperbole. To outlaw abortion is to give the state an ownership interest in a pregnant woman for the duration of her pregnancy. The Christian right thinks that the state should own pregnant women. That's basically what it comes down to. And we all know that it wouldn't end there. How long do you think it would take before they start outlawing certain activities between consenting adults? How long before pornography, or more accurately what they call pornography, falls under attack? 
How long before movies, television, and books all have censors and moral codes checking them for decency? How long before condoms and birth control are outlawed or before purity tests are administered in schools? But don't mistake what I'm saying. The left is no better. Oligarchy, plutocracy, technocracy, or whatever other brand of totalitarianism the progressives are selling is just as abhorrent and just as misguided and just as detrimental to individual self-ownership as the snake oil peddled by the religious right. Universal income, guaranteed jobs, and collective ownership are all fancy phrases that obscure the foundations of a slave state. Doubtful, you think? Why do you think it's always the wealthy left wing that wants more people to pay higher taxes? Is it some egalitarian principle that those with resources should help those without? That's certainly how they dress it up. That's certainly how they sell it. But what they propose comes at a much more sinister cost than they ever talk about. The wealthy already have their money. They already have their resources. But they want you to pay more because it's an institutionalized way, hidden behind the thin veneer of law, to ensure that they remain wealthy while you never have the opportunity to become wealthy. Let me tell you a story about the wealthiest man in the neighborhood, Jerry Moneybags. Jerry is worth around $10 million. It's a combination of stocks, properties, some small business interests. It's a regular portfolio. Jerry makes a few hundred thousand a year, but mostly writes off his expenses as business expenses. He set his family up as either a trust or as a corporation a number of years ago. All his property are owned by the family corporation, and this legal entity pays all the bills associated with these properties, such as taxes, utilities, maintenance, groundskeeping, etc. Likewise, the legal entity pays the bills to maintain the vehicles that it owns. Jerry's an executive of the trust or an executive officer of the corporation, so he draws a modest salary from the family funds, but, and more importantly, he has free use of the properties and of the vehicles, and he receives a stipend for food and a clothing allowance, all tax-free, just business expenses. Basically, Jerry can live a life of luxury without ever touching any money that he holds directly in his name. Jerry wants you to pay higher taxes. He thinks it's crazy that the wealthy don't have to pay their fair share. Jerry has more money than you, so his voice in the neighborhood is louder than yours. Now, down the street from Jerry, we have Johnny Everyman. Johnny there owns his own house. He has two or three cars, and he's responsible for his own bills. He makes a nice salary. It's enough with a little left over at the end of the year. Enough for a nice vacation. Maybe he'll open a business one day. He's thinking about it. He works hard. He knows he can make it happen. Except Jerry Moneybags is advocating for higher taxes so everyone pays what people are calling their fair share. Johnny looks around at what he paid last year. Johnny lives in the Northeast, so his tax burden was right around $30,000 before factoring in sales tax, property tax, school tax, and so forth and so on. The list never ends. Once taxes are raised, Johnny will be paying closer to 54000 
And again, that's not counting the increased cost of services, and the local school district is asking for higher school taxes, and his town wants higher property taxes to help pay for roads or some such. Business can pass the cost on to the consumer, while the individual just has to endure. Johnny finds himself in the unenviable position of making more and earning less, all while the wealthiest man in the neighborhood is unaffected by any changes. He has everything in trusts and corporations, don't forget. The result? Paying your fair share is a catchphrase sold to and sold by useful idiots who never took an economics class. The rich remain rich, while everyone else loses upward social mobility and becomes locked into what is, in effect, a class-based system. Your bills increase, your cost of living increases, and you are allowed to keep less and less of the money you worked for. Oh boy, the progressive utopia. Doesn't it sound wonderful? We're drifting off topic, though. Both the left and the right have a problem when it comes to rights. This right fright only serves to make people miserable. The right needs to obsess over something other than sex, and the left needs to stop trying to homogenize society into a glob of unthinking, poverty-stricken automatons good for nothing but consumption. Natural law and fundamental rights exist, and they can be discovered through reason alone. Neither the right nor the left is the answer. Both advocate for totalitarian regimes where the rights of the individual are sacrificed for state power. They are opposite sides of the same coin. Each is equally oppressive as the other. They are both abhorrent, repugnant, and, a result, and are a result of fear. They fear a free body politic. They fear free citizens. They are terrified of individual freedoms, and therefore they seek to control and suppress what they fear. Both sides wish to see the apparatus of the state used to keep the citizen in a platonic comparison, chained to the floor of the cave, mindless consumers feeding at the altar of the state. Now, Heidi might be an idiot. She could just as easily be gaslighting us. She wants the average mass media consumer to believe that rights come from government because what government gives, government can always take away. There have been plenty of responses to what she said. There have been snarky op-eds no one has read. There have been tweets on X no one cares about. And there's even been a few videos made on the philosophies of Thomas Aquinas no one has bothered to watch. The intelligentsia on the right once again misses the salient point. They hear what she said, and they chuckle to themselves as they sip scotch in wood-paneled libraries, chatting amicably about how she just doesn't understand Samuel Puffendorf's theological foundation of natural law. Yet ultimately, none of these responses matter. The average mass media consumer, that is the person who she was speaking to. The average viewer of the news is who she was speaking to. She wasn't talking to people who read National Review. She wasn't talking to people who track down op-eds, people who have philosophy books on their shelves. She was talking to the average viewer, and she was equating rights with, with Christian nationalism. 
Now, why would she do that? Well, what she basically did is for the average mass media consumer that saw that interview is left thinking that maybe rights do come from government. Because if they don't think that, or if they want to start questioning that, they then have to ask themselves if they support or if they're sympathetic to the viewpoints of right-wing radical ideas. Are they a Christian nationalist by asking whether or not government is where rights come from? And here is the door to oppression, cracked a little wider, just a little wider by these thoughts creeping into these people's heads. And it's not through some overt act of state aggression, but through a subtle use of rhetoric equating rights theory to radical viewpoints. In the end, as in so many other things, it's the average citizen that loses. Get out there. Talk to people. Show them how and why this is important. Show them that rights aren't some radical right-wing conspiracy to control lives or some radical leftist scheme to destroy morality. Show them that rights matter and that both political extremes are united in their desire for control and oppression. Control and oppression at the expense of the free citizen. Remember, man was born free and he is everywhere in chains. There are no gods, there are no masters. Until next time, stay ungovernable and misbehave.